Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where S is for Harry Saltzman, the movie producer who, with Cubby Broccoli, produced the first nine James Bond pictures. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we take a look at the life and career of the OG Bond producer is the Dan to my Jack, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Oh, very good. And it works as well, the Brendan. Brendan. Yes. So I feel like... Uh, Harry Saltzman, um, he's almost the the forgotten man of the Bond story, almost. Um, but I think it's uh, hard to understate his importance in the early days of Bond. Without Harry, you know, we wouldn't have had the Bond films that we know and uh, mostly love today. Um, so um, obviously he left the series after The Man with the Golden Gun. I think, as they say, you know, history is written by the victors. And nowadays, the history of the series sort of sort of tends to focus on Cubby Broccoli as the mastermind behind it all. But um, I don't think the reality is quite as simple as that, as as we'll explore. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. You, yeah, you always um, remember, well, I remember growing up noticing his name at the beginning of the films with mm. Cubby Broccoli. And then you notice it when it's gone. It's like, oh, it, now, it's, now it's just Albert R. Broccoli. Um, so there is sort of a not forgotten but a bit of mystery about it like oh what happened to the Harry Saltzman part of this yeah and I mean I guess a a lot of I mean hardcore Bond fans will know the story of what happened and and why Harry left the series but that's part of what we'll what we'll explore in this in this episode but I I will say that having researched a lot into Harry um, I found his stories a lot of his stories are only quite surprising so um, hopefully listening to this you might learn some some new things as well um i just thought i'd kick off with um an obituary that was written for harry by woodfall films 
which was a company that he worked um, was part he was a part of. And it said that t- Tony Richardson affectionately dubbed his Woodfall partner Harry Saltzman as a huckster, a sublime huckster. The Canadian-American impresario is fondly remembered by all who knew him as a truly larger-than-life character, the walking, talking epitome of the showbiz wheeler-dealer forever on the lookout for the main chance. So it was a nice little way to mm. sum him up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's let's start, as we always do, at the beginning. So, born Herschel Saltzman in October 1915. He uh, was born in Canada. Um, but those early years that actually were that were unknown to even him. He actually revealed himself. He said he, he didn't find out until he was 30 that he was actually born in a, a hospital in Sherbrooke. So there's, there's stuff that was just not known to him um, until later life. Um, he was spent the first seven years of his life um, with his father, and then he moved to Cleveland. And due to problems in early life, he he never spoke of his mother and his kids. They never knew about the grandmother either. In 1932, he moved to Paris to study political science and economics. I, I wonder if that's a common thing for Canadians because it's obviously the two countries are quite the language. linked. Yeah, the language yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, he was he spoke uh, different languages, didn't he? He had different phones. Oh, that's right. With yeah. different languages. Um, so yeah, that was his initial plan. But within a year, and this is where we see his uh, wheeler dealering. Within a year, he was already um, the, had that passion for the stage, and he was a talent manager for Vaudeville. Um, and he was handpicking talent for forty-two a day vaudeville houses all over Europe. So mm. pretty, pretty big deal from that early age, really. And then moving forward, he he was uh, had a contract where he was dealing with bookings for large enterprises. And he went to the west coast, west coast, and he was signing up names for like big pictures. Nineteen forty-three, he's then managing a circus, the Gilbert Brothers Combined Circus. And um, the advert, the advert at the time was it, they were so successful that season. It began in May and ended in October, and it was fully booked. And we'll see this as we go along about how his uh, negotiation skills really help, um, and they would have helped with this selling all these tickets. But um, that's something that we'll we'll, we'll learn. Um, so obviously, he's carving this career out for himself, but as we have learned. The war comes and disrupts everything. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, I, I know that later they sort of talk about Harry working in circuses and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it feels like he was just sort of born into show business, wasn't it? Despite mm-hmm. uh, despite his tough uh, tough beginnings, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, interesting. Uh, his World War Two career. Um, it's it's it, this is all stuff that was new to me again. A lot of people out there will probably know all this stuff already, but this was all quite uh, quite new information for me. But uh, at the start of World War Two, Harry joined the Royal Canadian Air Force in Vancouver. But from there on in, his, his sort of war career is a bit of an enigma, um, and all signs point to him being um, heavily involved and, and connected with espionage and intelligence uh, work during the war, uh, which is obviously quite interesting considering the series he ended up producing um 
the a lot of the information around Harry's military career came up because his daughter Hillary, um, she was trying to get um, documents about Harry's citizenship from the U.S. government in the early uh, noughties. and she had to basically request all this, all these documents, and they were highly, highly classified. And in fact, it went all the way up to Colin Powell in the U.S. government, who had to sign off having these documents released. So a lot of this all comes um, from information that was released way after his death. Um, so apparently he, Harry was given a medical discharge early in the war and he returned to New York City to manage a theatre. But in 1942, he enlisted with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. And he then joined the Psychological Warfare Division. Um, and he spent a lot of the rest of the war, pretty much the rest of the war in Europe. Now, the Psychological Warfare Division would bring him into close circles with Ian Fleming, which, as we'll discuss. Um, but yeah, he also served in North Africa and then also uh, in in London as well. So, um, yeah, after basically some time after um, um, taking it, oath, this is the documents that we know, but sometime after the, taking his oath of allegiance in 1939, he became a high ranking US intelligence officer. And there's a great report on the Vanity Fair, which you can read online. It's called Harry the Spy, the secret prehistory of a James Bond producer. And this all this information basically comes from that uh, story. So there's a letter that is dated um, from a Robert Sherwood, uh, who is the director of overseas operation. Um, in the Office of War Information, and he sent a letter to the Assistant Secretary of State in 1943. And this showed that Harry was sent to Algiers to work under, seemingly undercover as a motion picture distributor for the OWI. But I mean, the, the, the important information here is, is that um, he was working for a guy called uh, C.D. Jackson in, in, in North Africa, and he would basically control psychological warfare operations in, in North Africa. Uh, and they produced stuff from fake radio broadcasts, books and newspapers, documents, and also films for to fake staged events. Um, and obviously that sort of filming experience would come in useful in Harry's later life. There's another uh, a follow-up letter from 1943 uh, in December 1943, which in which asks for uh, Harry Saltzman's services being urgently needed in London. So the um, psychological operations in North Africa expanded into Europe, and Harry was a key part of this. And this is where he probably started to cross paths, or at least mix in the same circles as Ian Fleming, um, who was working in naval intelligence, as discussed in Ian Fleming episode before. So they had um, um, a lot of operations were, or, or a lot of the offices that the intelligence people worked out of were in the Dorchester Hotel, somewhere that Ian Fleming spent a lot of time. Um, but um, yeah, Harry would have spent a lot of time there in, uh, in, in late World War Two. And then um, in 1945, another letter reveals that although VE Day had been celebrated Harry Saltzman was, uh, his visas were, were were expedited so that he could go to France to help the uh, resumption of normal trade relations between France and the United States. So this is where, like, yeah, he comes into um, uh, the circle of the National Public Relations Advisors, which was a sort of a front for the OSS. Um, and so, uh, yeah, 
it suggests that even at the at the close of the war, Harry's um, uh, mixing with the intelligence services was still ongoing. Um, and in 1945, Harry set up or helped to set up a film division for UNESCO. Um, and it, it was around this time that uh, Harry met a lady called Jacqueline Collin, who was a refugee from uh, Romania. Um, and he would later then go on to marry and have three children together, Stephen, Hilary and Christopher. And Jacqueline is obviously one half of the name Dan Jack, which we'll come to in a little bit. But um, he had been married before that to a lady called Tanya Morris and they'd had a daughter together called Mary. Um, but his his career then from there on becomes a little bit harder to piece together. Um, he obviously left the military and, and intelligence services. With some of the jobs that he did, he did it. He got a production manager on a live TV show called Robert Montgomery Presents. Uh, there was a a, a, jo- a a company that he had which rented out wooden hobby horses to hotels and and, and things. Um, and he also produced a a series called the Cap. Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion, which starred Buster Crab, but he moved um, then his his family, Jacqueline and his kids, to the UK in the nineteen fifties. Um, and this is around this time he becomes uh, acquainted with Joanna Harwood, again someone we've uh, covered on the podcast before. But she goes on to co-write um, Doctor No from Russia with Love, um, and he was there and he was producing theatre. Um, and it was at this time that he entered into the film production industry by uh, making a film of a play called The Iron Petticoat, which starred Bob Hope. Um, so to sort of sum things up, uh, I've got a quote from his daughter, Hillary here. He, he said, Harry was a voracious reader. He loved history. He loved geography. He loved learning about new things. And he was enthralled to the theatre. He was also multilingual and by all accounts, just considered a very, very sociable person which I think helps with um, Mm. networking within the film industry. Yeah, and certainly helped with his next stage of his life, where he combined with Tony Richardson and John Osborne and formed a production company called Woodfall Films. And um, they wanted to try and finance some of the ideas they had and make make feature films. and this is where Harry really starts to find his passion. So using all the contacts he's built up, um, he managed to get some financial backing and, and and enabled them to actually launch. So with his energy, and then he had a, a obviously he had a playwright and a, a director on, on board with him as well. You know, it's, it's a real force to be reckoned with and actually did change uh, British cinema which is incredible and, and something that maybe he's not credited with. So yeah, he was, he rented a house um, and Tony Richardson says that um, he rented Lowndes Cottage in Chelsea. Harry immediately installed a mini empire, secretaries, chauffeurs, multilingual cooks arrived from wherever. International hookers rotated the guest rooms. Hollywood stars like Kirk De- Douglas and Burt Lancaster, producers like Charlie Feldman were often guests. Harry was totally in charge of the business side. It was great fun. Harry created a wonderful atmosphere and I, and John too, enjoyed every minute of it. (laughs) So yeah, they were having a lot of fun at this time um, and went on to make some really successful in terms of uh, critics. Um, So they made Look Back in Anger, 
1959. And then also, uh, well, that got a Golden Globe nomination, actually, that one. Um, oh, wow. So that uh, enthusiasm for theatre that you mentioned, that's basically the, his method of finding really good things to turn into a motion picture. Um, he'd go and, and he'd see if there was something that was successful on the stage could be adapted. So that's that's how he made a success of Look Back in Anger. And then I've, went not, on see, to I've make... not seen that one, have you? No, but I have seen Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. I was going to say, we did this at film school, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I remember watching it. Yeah. Um, starring a young Albert Finney. Um, and it's it's set in Nottingham, actually, which I'd forgotten. Mm. And that got three BAFTAs uh, in 1961. That's that same year they made um, the entertain the entertainer, which starred Laurence Olivier, and critics acclaim that as you know his greatest performance on on film. Oh wow! Um, uh, and that was he was nominated for uh, Academy Award for Best Actor on that one. Um, and Saltzman said uh, what his vision for Woodfall was. He actually wrote an essay about it in 1960, and he said. I believe that I believe there is a place in Britain for realistic, hard-hitting films, which take chances and show the well-trodden paths of stereotyped, purely commercial filmmaking. But the most important thing about our company is that we insist on having artistic control of our pictures. We want to make them honestly. Um, so, despite them being very well received, they weren't really big money makers. So they weren't actually financially well off. Um, and then he declared himself sick of kitchen sink dramas and decided <laughs> to part ways with the company. Ah. Um, and while I was looking into this, I, I was just thinking, oh, what, what has that gone on? You know, the kitchen sink drama, where, where are we from, from that point on? Well, we've got like, people like Ken Loach who are still making films, right? But one of the biggest British institutions started in 1960 and is a kitchen sink drama. And it's still going today. And and so in some way, Saltzman is you know, responsible for Coronation Street. Right. Because because that's that that would be where their minds were at when they were creating Coronation Street. Yeah, um, so true. So yeah, another another legacy that he's uh, he's left. I mean, those are hugely influential films. I think mm-hmm. uh that's um that that is uh undoubted. Um yeah. that Saturday night, Sunday morning is um yeah like i say it's, just, it's still a film that's referenced today i think um said we watched it at film school and it it, it has a real impact when you watch it mm. um and that's all yeah. pretty realism like you say mike lee still does sort of similar stuff yeah um it's it's still something that um yeah resonates today i think for sure so Let's bring Bond into the picture. So Harry was known to be a fan of Ian Fleming's Bond books. I think Goldfinger was the one that really hooked his attention. And as it turned out, he shared the same lawyer as Ian Fleming, uh, a guy called Brian Lewis in London. So um, over lunch at Les Ambassadeurs, the uh, casino uh, scene in Dr. No, um, Brian Lewis convinced Ian Fleming to do a deal with Harry uh, in order to... um, basically to increase the value of Fleming's estate because Ian Fleming at this time was suffering ill health and they were worried that the uh, the trust funds and whatever set up for Ian Fleming's son Casper wouldn't be worth much if they weren't able to secure some extra money uh, within the films or within the books. 
by um, selling options for the films. And we covered a lot more of this in the Ian Fleming episode. So you can revisit that one if you want to learn more about the the rights and how they passed on. But um, when Fleming then met with Harry Saltzman, uh, Ian Fleming told Harry Saltzman that he thought movies were a low form of art. Harry said, I'm going to show you a movie. He showed him Saturday night, Sunday morning, probably traded war stories with Ian mm. Fleming at this stage. You know, they had uh, shared history. Um, if they did know each other, this is when they would have talked about it. But over this uh, over this meeting, they decided to strike a deal um, to strike a deal. And uh, so for fifty thousand uh, dollars, Harry Saltzman was granted a six month option on the film rights to the novels, not including Casino Royale, because uh, those film rights lay elsewhere. And um, obviously that, that was eight books at that point, because it was just before Thunderball was published. Um, and if the project was picked up by a major studio, uh, he, Harry agreed he would try and get Ian Fleming $100,000 a picture, plus a percentage of the profits from the movies that they made. So he, at this point, set Joanna Harwood, his colleague, uh, about to write synopses for all the different books with an eye to adapting them for the screen. So as we know, at this stage uh, of, the, of the story, um, the popularity of the Ian Fleming books exploded due to the Life magazine story with um, John F., uh, JFK with um, Kennedy, where he listed his favourite books and listed uh, From Russia With Love in there. But uh, five months into the six month option, Harry had um, he'd not been able to find funding for the films. He'd met a lot of people, but he just struggled to find a way to get them over the line. So at the very same time, Cubby Albert R. Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli, um, was working with Wolf Mankiewicz, who Wolf Mankiewicz was sort of the go-between. So he knew Harry Saltzman, he knew uh, that he had the James Bond options, and he knew Cubby was interested in making with them. So basically, Cubby was working with uh, Wolf Mankiewicz on an Arabian Nights type movie. Um, didn't like it, and when Mankiewicz said, "What, what would, what do you like?" He said he wants to make the Ian Fleming James Bond books. That struck a, 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 a light in his head, and he then connected them to each other. So this is when Saltzman and Broccoli meet. Cubby Broccoli at this stage had just got rid of his old producing partner, Irvin Allen, and he wanted to buy the option to the Bond films entirely. But Sir Harry Saltzman could see there was money to be made here and insisted on going 50-50 on it. So he actually, even before they met, drew up a document that said that... Um, uh, that that said, you and I have mutually agreed that we will share that we will shall equally share the film rights to all the Bond books, save at this point Casino Royale. And at this point, so this is June 1961. This is born what Guy Hamilton would later call a wonderful double act. Uh, they formed Danjak in 1962. This was a holding company responsible for the copyright and trademarks of James Bond on screen, and is also the parent company of Eon Productions, which is the film company they set up to produce the Bond films. And as I said, Dan Jack, the name of the company, the holding company is a combination of Harry's wife, Jacqueline, and Cubby's wife, Dana, Dan Jack. So just setting out the stall of who did what uh, within uh, this partnership, uh, there's a good quote on The Guardian um, written by a journalist called John Patterson. He said, Saltzman superintended the writing, sculpting the character and the essence of the franchise, accentuating the Englishness of it all, and pushed, and he pushed for the roughneck Sean Connery as Bond over the effect James Mason is toffed 
mulled by Fleming and Broccoli. So as you can see, he plays a crucial part in forming the films that we know and love today. Cubby was able to secure the financing. Harry, at this stage, seemed to have a better idea of what was going to work uh, on screen. So then on to making the first Bond film, uh, the new company, Dan Jack, they approached United Artists. And um, we did cover this. We've covered this a couple of times, actually, how how the initial... Uh, in Dr. No, of course, we would have covered it then. Yeah. Um, but United Artists, they put the $1 million budget, $1 million budget for the, the first 007 film. And they got to work and uh, they had to find uh, a man to play Bond. Um, and this is where uh, Harry Saltzman, after the meeting with Sean Connery, he said whenever we wanted to make a point, he'd bang his fist on the table, the desk or his thigh... And we knew this guy had something. When he left, we watched him from the windows. He walked down the street and we all said, he's got it. Uh, and that's where I think it's is it Dana Broccoli says that he walked like a panther. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yeah, that's when Joanna Harwood received a telegram from Harry Saltzman. And he just put, have concluded bond deal with United Artists. Production starting 15th of October. Stop. Urgent. Do screen treatment. Break down. Thunderball. Stop. Doctor No or Thunderball. Probably first subject. Stop. So at this point, they did want to make Thunderball the first one, but the Kevin McClory klaxon, uh, <laughs> again, it wasn't possible at this point. So they went with Dr. No. Um, something that actually looking back, it's, it's probably a good thing because trying to make Thunderball on a million dollars, you're going to struggle. It would have been a very different picture, wouldn't it? Yeah. Especially you don't have the underwater te- camera technology as well. So it would have, I don't know how they would have done that. Yeah. Um, so the, then they had to put all the pieces together for their first film. And um, the first choice of director was uh, Phil Carlson, but he wanted too much money. Um, they offered Dr. No to Guy Green, Guy Hamilton, Val Guest, Ken Hughes, but they all turned it down. And they finally went with Terence Young, who had a background with Warwick Films, which was Broccoli's company. Um, but they both agreed that he'd be able to make a really good impression of what who Bond should be and, and really create that, the essence and flavor of the character. Um, it was Harry Saltzman that picked uh, Joseph Wiseman because he'd seen him in um, a film called Detective Story. This this is at the early stage where the producers have got pretty much final say and they can just put anyone forward. Um, so in terms of Monty Newman, Monty Norman, he was, um, he was busy doing musicals, but they wanted to get him on board to do music for Dr. No. Um, he only agreed when Harry Saltzman said that he could travel and go to Jamaica. So the, these decisions that um, Harry Saltzman's making, they probably seem just like normal decisions back then. But now, now it just seems like they're huge de- decisions. Yeah. You know, had, it, had he have not got Monty Norman on board, the theme tune would have been completely different. Yeah. Um, and then, like you said, JFK uh, named... From Russia with Love, amongst one of his favourite books of all time in Life magazine. So that helped them decide what they should follow up Dr. No for. And Harry Saltzman, he's known for his strong, opinionated, uh, forthright views and um, just being down to the point, really. But Sid Kane actually says um, when they were on set on For Russia with Love, he said, a voice boomed out across in a store 
What are you doing, Sid? It was Harry. I explained I was looking for a present to take away for my wife, Angela. This is what you should buy her, said Harry, showing a harem ring made of rubies and blue enameled gold. I told Harry it was out of my reach. That night, I was surprised to see my ring on the bedside table. I explained to Harry that he had embarrassed me by doing this. and My wife would immediately know I couldn't afford such a present. Though I appreciated his wonderful gesture, Harry understood and said, this is what you do. Tell your wife it's a present from me for all the hard work you've done and that she's come out to location. She's come out to the location for a holiday, all on the company, of course. So there's a side of um, Harry Saltzman um, that maybe isn't as public, publicly made aware as like we know Cubby is. Uh, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of positive stories about Cubby. Uh, and then moving to Goldfinger, Ken Adam, he, he talks about the debate about which, which car Bond should drive. And uh, he said there were E-type Jaguars, Aston Martins, Ferraris, Alfa Romeos, but we decided the DB5 by far the most expensive British sports car would be right prop for Bond. And so they actually were struggling with uh, Aston Martin's general manager, Steve Heggie, and he just wasn't interested in it because they get it all the time and he just couldn't be bothered. So Harry Saltzman... And it was an unknown quantity at that point as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Harry Saltzman gives them a call and the negotiation skills. Um, He managed to persuade them to provide them with two DB5s, and the rest is history. (laughs) In terms of the script, though, he disliked the first draft. He said it was too American, so that's where he brought in... Is it Paul Dane? Paul Dane, yeah. Yeah. So he brought in Paul Dane to revise it. Um, So, again, Paris Holtzman is clearly reading these scripts, you know, and uh, has strong opinions on what he thinks it should look like. Um, Mm-hmm. He didn't like the designs of Fort Knox because it it resembled a prison. Um, But because Guy Hamilton was a fan, it it was built and they went ahead with it. So uh, not always, didn't always go his way. So uh, on Goldfinger, though, I don't know if we've told this, but (laughs) um, we probably have. But on the first day at Pinewood, (laughs) Harry Saltzman was there to get things off to a great start. Yes. And uh, (laughs) he comes onto the set. And he's got a bottle of champagne. He says, this is to wish you all tremendous good fortune with the picture. And he smashes the bottle of champagne on the camera. <laughs> and then he can't understand why no one's clapping. We were all stunned. There is broken glass everywhere. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great story. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it is a bit, uh, it is funny to think about it now, isn't it? I think if you... Um, yeah. And we've talked about it before, but if they made a series about the making of the film, you know, like a drama, dramatized mm-hmm. series about how they made the James Bond films, you could just see yeah. that being an absolutely corking sort of madman-esque moment, couldn't you? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. But I think it also speaks a lot about how, you know, Cubby comes into the, into the, into the frame, into the story and is, uh, has got years of making big budget international pictures Harry mm-hmm. comes in. He's had some critical success, but these are much smaller scale productions. Yeah, and so you know he probably doesn't have as much experience on set and with crews as um, as, as Cubby. So uh, I think the differences are sort of becoming clear. I guess. Yeah, um, and and very much so with the next film, um, Thunderball was released. It was breaking box office records all over the world, um, but there were signs of issues at Eon. Um, it just, it seemed like the relationship of uh, 
Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli had came to a point where it couldn't carry on as it was. So they there was there was loads of rumours going around what would happen, but they decided to separate rather than completely part ways. So that meant that it was an amicable agreement that meant that they still retained the rights as they were. They were still partners and they would produce the Bond pictures, but it meant that they would key produce alternate films. So only one of them would have final say on everything. So be involved, but one would have the overarching uh, power. So Cubby Broccoli took over for You Only Live Twice. And Cubby actually said, I knew that Harry Saltzman and I wouldn't be able to conceal our own disagreements much longer. It wasn't just a conflict of personalities. While other partnerships have survived, it was, at least the way I saw it, two totally contrasting attitudes to Bond. And I think you could argue that you can see that in the films that they made. There is a pattern. You think? Um, well, so got, You Only Live Twice is fantastical. That's a Cubby, that's a cubby Broccoli That's picture. Cubby. Yeah. yeah. Harry Saltzman. Yeah, yeah, on a Majesty's Secret on a Service, yeah, more grounded, more yeah. grounded, yeah, diamonds are forever, yeah, silly, yeah, yeah. live and let die. die, more grounded, yeah, man with the golden gun, silly, yeah, I've never even thought about that, thought thought about that before, yeah, um, and that probably goes back to their previous filmmaking, yeah, you know, if he's making kitchen sink dramas, he said he's sick of them, but you know, he's still he's still got roots. Roots there. Yeah, making yeah. Coffee. Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So, I mean, Harry, uh, beyond um, Bond, he did have um, success in the early 60s with uh, other pictures as well. So um, in 1958, he set up another production company called Lowndes Productions. And were you saying that his house was called Lowndes Cottage? That's right. Yeah, the one yeah, 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 so in Chelsea. Yeah, must be named after that then. So... Um, he actually didn't start using it as a company to make films until 1965, and he made eight eight films um, with it thereafter. But um, yeah, other films produced by Harry in the 60s include Call Me Buana, which was the 1963 film that they produced after Doctor No. This was because they had a deal with United Artists that they would make one Bond film and another uh, an other film, and the Call Me Buana was that was that one. But um, this was the one where um, we talked about this before, but. Um, uh, a friend of theirs, um, Donald Zeck, who was a friend of Cubby Broccoli's, he asked Harry, um, you know, what he wanted to do for his next picture. And because he'd done that film with Bob Hope, he said, let's make a Bob Hope movie. What's, what, people love Bob Hope. Donald Zeck was pushing him to make a film with a small up and coming uh, beat combo called The Beatles. And Harry Saltzman thought that was funny. And he said, why would I want to make a film about four long-haired kids from Liverpool when we have Bob Hope? <laughs> so United Artists went on anyway to make the, the Beatles films. Um, and Hard Day's Night ended up outgrossing Call Me Buona. So there you go. The benefit of hindsight there. 
Then in 1965, Harry produced the Ipcrest file. This was the Len Dayton uh, adaptation. So Len Dayton had been brought into the Eon fold to uh, write From Russia With Love, but that never went anywhere. But uh, at that time, Len Dayton did a deal with Harry to make the Ipcrest file. This is a much more grounded sort of alternate take on the spy films. So it's quite interesting. This is quite a co- uh, an example of Harry's contrary nature. He's producing the most successful spy films in the world. So what does he do? He sets up a rival spy film <laughs> franchise that is the antithesis of it. Um, interestingly, obviously, it stars Michael Caine um, as Harry Palmer, but also involved in the first Ip Press file film is Ken Adam, Peter Hunt and John Barry as well. Um, they did two more Harry Palmer films uh, with Harry uh, Palmer, um, funeral in Berlin in 1966 and also Billion Dollar Brains quickly in 1967. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But in 1965, he produced an interesting film, a, a biography of Pope John XXIII with uh, Rod Steiger um, in it. And it also starred Adolfo Celli. Um, so it's based on the diary that the Pope kept between the ages of 14 and 18. Um, just sounds like a bit of a curio, a bit of an art house movie there. Hmm. Um, then in 1965, um, there was he he worked with Orson Welles on a film uh, based on Shakespeare's Falstaff character called Chimes at Midnight, um, and it's about you know Falstaff and and the relationship he has with uh, Prince Hal, um, and this was shot uh, in Spain between 1964 and 1965. Bit of a passion project for Orson Welles, obviously most famous for Citizen Kane and, and what have you. But during production, Orson Welles was making this off his own back, basically. He ran out of money and ha- Harry Saltzman stepped in and um, funded the movie uh, and allowed it to be um, finished. This film premiered at Cannes in 1966, winning awards. Mm. Um, and it's, it, Orson Welles, called it his highest achievement he'll call it his best work wow so uh, yeah i thought that was quite interesting uh so then 66 was a funeral in berlin directed by guy hamilton 19 another film in 1966 was an un monde nouveau which was a french italian drama that has a cameo from sean connery in it that um, harry produced and in 67 he produced a film or presented a film presented by harry saltzman called shock troops um and uh yeah couldn't tell you much more about that one and then uh billion dollar brain like i said 1967 and then harry wanted to make a film about the ballet dancer Nijinsky with rudolf nuriev 
and this was something he was going to do with with Ken Russell. In the end, he brought Ken Russell in to do Billion Dollar Brain uh, instead. And this Nijinsky idea sort of um, just sort of percolated in the background. Um, then um, 67, he produced a documentary called Israel, A Right to Live. Harry Saltzman was Jewish, um, very uh, sort of proud uh, Zionist. Um, and then 69, he did a World War II film with Michael Caine called Play Dirty. Um, which is set during the North African campaign in the Second World War. So probably drawing on his own experiences there. Mm. Interestingly, Harry's mother-in-law, Lottie Collin, has a co-writing credit on the film, um, which is written with Melvin Bragg. So but apparently that was a bit of a disaster, that one. Um, it sort of it was, was supposed to be star Richard Harris. He walked off the set. Uh, it lost its director um, through um, disagreements, apparently, um, Harry wanted a, a, a blazing guns and roaring tank movie where the original director said he wanted to make a poetry of war movie. And then 69, probably Harry's biggest and most famous production um, outside of Bond, The Battle of Britain, directed by Guy Hamilton. This was a huge epic war movie, a sort of war movie they don't make anymore, really. Had Laurence Olivier, Tre Trevor Howard, also starred Michael Caine, Christopher Plummer and Robert Shaw. And interestingly, one of the Germans in the film was Kurt Jürgens, who would later go on to star in The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't it. It was OK. It wasn't well received, didn't do that great, but is considered now, you know, a, a bit of a classic. And then just yeah. bringing it back to Harry himself, um, he, he invested in a, a family home called Woodlands Park um, and he would often host cast members there. Um and would be his home for, for many years in the UK. Um, and I read at one point he had two German shepherd dogs that he called, one called James, the other called Bond. <laughs> I um, I read somewhere that um, all this, all these films that you've gone through, that there was something, a, a bone of contention with Cubby. Mm. Because he's doing a lot of non-Bond non films. Uh, I remember Cubby's made, what, two Call Me Buona and Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, I yeah. imagine that sort of would keep someone very busy and very occupied yeah. having all these sort of side projects. Mm. Um, by most accounts, the 60s stuff was fairly lucrative for Harry. Um, but yeah, I could see, like now with hindsight, you could see that, you know, the Bond thing is the one to focus on rather than trying yeah. to do too much at once. Um, yeah. But yeah, interesting. So on, on to back onto Bond, we've got You Only Live Twice, and um, it was Harry Saltzman who cast Jan Werick, Werick as uh, as Blofeld. And if you remember, uh, we talked about that in the Blofeld episode, that when he turned up, um, Cubby and the director, Lewis Gilbert, they uh, thought it was a terrible choice and said that he looked like a poor, benevolent Father Christmas. <laughs> um, so... I mean, there are still some shots in the film where you can see it's him sat in the chair because you can see his hair. Um, but obviously he was then recast um, and Donald Pleasance stepped in. Um, also, the uh, the role of Helga Brandt, played by Karen Dorr, um, she test screen tested successfully and they were negotiating at the Dorchester. Um, and it was during this, Harry Saltzman... Uh, forced Karen Dawes' agent to take her client and leave. And uh, Karen Dawes said, Saltzman came running down, took her arm, pulled her out of the car and said to me, you have the worst agent I've ever worked with. <laughs> um, 
so obviously negotiations didn't didn't go too well, but luckily she ended up getting the getting the part and playing the role. Um, but there were further further issues with her getting a work permit. I don't know if we covered that, but um, yeah, it was it was right before the uh, England Germany nineteen sixty six final as well. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, it was proven difficult. It was went right down to the wire. So uh, Peter Lamont as well. Um, he was set decorator on this one and um, it was his job to source the equipment and the vehicles and everything needed to to set dress the volcano. Um, so obviously the great thing about that scene is all the detail, <laughs> everything that's going on. Um, and so with, with one of the fir- his first ever meetings with the producers, um, Peter Lamont, he presented how much it would cost to Harris Holtzman uh, and he said, I remember getting into one big argument with him. I remember submitting this list and Harry went absolutely potty. And he said, God damn it, can't we get this stuff for free? I remember almost in tears leaving the room and Stanley Sopel, the associate producer, came out and he said, don't argue with him. You know what to do. Buy the damn things. And luckily enough, they did because, you know, it's one of the all time great uh, Bond scenes. But interesting that where where Harry Saltzman's happy to spend money and not spend money, I thought. Um, but I guess he's so used to getting getting deals that you know maybe stuff stuff at a high price maybe it's hard to swallow. They had the resignation of Sean Connery to to deal with um, at the beginning of filming. You only live twice. Uh, Saltzman wanted to adapt the Man with the Golden Gun in Cambodia and use Roger Moore. So uh, it was his idea to to get Roger Moore on board as the next Bond. But obviously he'd signed up for another series of The Saint um, and Cambodia was ruled out because it was politically unstable at the time. Moving on to Honor Majesties. So Saltzman wasn't impressed with George Lazenby um, because he found out he was a model uh, and he said, get him out of here. He's a clothes peg. He'll be the laughing stock of the industry if we hire, hire a male model. So to quash any fears um, that a, a non-actor was testing for the role, they went to went, went in secret to Woodlands, um, Harry's house. And they basically got all the crew there and had to be really discreet. Lazenby said that Peter Hunt reassured Harry Saltzman and said, I'll get Samuelson, the guy who owns the camera company, and a couple of guys I know. Um, and then... Yeah, so they got there, they did that Lazenby swam and rode horses and tired the horses out, and apparently that's what got him the role. <laughs> On Dimes Are Forever, a quote from John Barry that said, Upon hearing the recording, this is of the theme tune, the theme song, Saltzman had another outburst, and John Barry said, He was so impossible to deal with, I could never deal with Harry. Interesting that it was on Diamonds Are Forever, which is considered up there in, you know, one of the best theme songs. Mm. And he wasn't wasn't a fan of it. it wasn't it was the all, wasn't it the lewd nature of the the lyrics that Harry disagreed the, with? The penis reference, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that was only um, what was told. It was wasn't written with penis in mind. It was just what Shirley Bassey was told. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly talking about her. Yeah, it was Saltzman's idea to uh, cast Putter Smith as Mister Kid mm. because he went to see Thelonious Monk in a show. Um, so that was down to him. Uh, and then more, well, he's, he's, he's back to more films outside of Bond. Yes. 
just just before I move on to that, I remember when we did um, Honor Majesties recently, um, um, George Lazenby, uh, although he fell out with a lot of people on set, found he could get on really well with Harry. He found Harry to be, uh, I think he called him a, a straight shooter. He yeah, always no spoke nonsense. his mind. No nonsense yeah. kind of guy, yeah. Mm. I think he sort of appreciated that sort of honesty and upfront um, nature about it. I, th- I feel like Harry maybe was more backing of Lazenby than uh than than cubby perhaps um yeah but i mean we he, he okayed it and remember it was his he had overall say didn't he he was the producer on yeah that that's it so here we go 1970s this is where things start to go a little bit wrong for harry he enters into a three-picture deal with a guy called don kirshner um uh, and don kirshner was known as the producer of the music of the monkeys or at least the the early um producer of the monkeys however during the production of their first film together a film called tomorrow that's tomorrow but with t-o-o at the beginning uh, in 1970 kirshner and saltzman according to director valgas grew to loathe each other as the production went uh, completely out of control now the film Tomorrow is really is is quite notable for starring Olivia Newton-John in one of her first movie roles. Um, obviously, R.I.P. Uh, now uh, it was directed by Val Guest, um, who was known for being a Hammer Hammer horror type director, um, and a guy called Hugo Montenegro wrote uh, some of the music for it. But there was problems behind the scenes. Uh, Val Guest was working on the film for six months um, beyond the time uh, within his contract. And he said he hadn't been paid. He said nor had anyone else who'd worked on the film. Unfortunately, Harry didn't have any money, nor did his company, this company called Sweet Music, which was based in Switzerland. So after the premiere at the London Pavilion, Val Guest took out an injunction against Harry and the producers, which meant that the film um, could not be shown until Val Guest and everyone else who'd worked on the film were paid. And this just completely destroyed the film. Um, And in an interview in 1994, Val Guest said that he'd still not been paid and that Mm. the injunction was still in effect. So it was only ever available um, on release for two weeks before the injunction took effect. Um, uh, And the producer, Don Kirshner, um, who would co-produce with with Harry, he hated the film so much that he refused to ever let the film be screened during his lifetime. And it was only shown again in public in 2000 at the L.A. Film Festival. And a, the only known print had to be flown out to L.A. from the BFI to show the film. So it, it basically it took two years to make, but it, it showed for one week and then was basically put on the shelf and just disappeared again. Apparently it was shown to the British Armed Forces in the early 70s. It was a film that they took to, to army bases and showed them. Um, now, you can watch Tomorrow online it's on youtube in, a, in quite a poor quality but it's never been properly released on dvd or blu-ray there's a very poor quality version you can get but interestingly john steers did special effects for it and also margaret nolan who appeared in goldfinger also is in the movie but it's like a science fiction musical type thing mm. um 
which sounds like another um, Livy Newton-John film, Xanadu, another sort of notorious sci-fi flop she was in as well. But um, yeah, that was a big cloud over Harry, I think, in the early 70s. And the other film he was working on was uh, this Nijinsky. This was sort of starting to come together. This was due to be filmed in 1970, but just weeks before they're about to start shooting with Rudolf Nureyev um, as, as Nijinsky. The the, pull, the the plug was pulled um, and they couldn't um, do it. Uh, Tony Richardson, his colleague from Woodfall Film, said that Saltzman had overextended himself and did just didn't have the funds to make the movie. Then another film he was working on in the 70s was The Micronauts. And again, I don't know if you remember this, but this was a film that they he spoke to George Lazenby about starring in. Um, George Lazenby and Michael Caine were linked to making that film about a shrunken man, a science fiction film. But that, again, fell through. Um, and there was also a version of that with Gregory Peck and Lee Remick that just never, never came to pass. Um, there was a film that he did produce in 1973 called Fury, which starred Oliver Reed. And then another film he hoped to make in the 70s was one of a Canadian Metis resistant leader called Cuthbert Grant. And that was going to star Sean Connery. Again, he failed to ever get that off the ground. But um, later in life, his son Stephen said that, um, you know, Harry's uh, estate has oh, still owns uh, the rights to about 150 books that Harry optioned to make into movies that never got off the ground. Um, so he was constantly trying to, trying to get mm. things together um but at this stage in the early 70s uh, the movies the money he was making from films i mean basically he was losing more money making films than he was um from from making them yeah and it's the um the constant you know all those films that he's making on the side uh it does take its toll uh, in 1969, he borrowed 70 million Swiss francs um, from the Bank of Switzerland. He, in 1970, he um, got control of Technicolor, the Technicolor Motion Picture Corporation. But by 1972, he'd have to, he'd already had to sell off half of those shares of Technicolor to repay the loan for the bank from the Bank of Switzerland that he'd taken out. So, you know, things weren't looking good, and um, there were several lawsuits that were, that were then filed against Technicolor uh, board members. Saltzman was claiming conspiracy uh, that they were seeking to retain positions in the firm. Tom Mankiewicz actually said that Technicolor, when Saltzman took over, were selling $30 a share. And by the time Saltzman was gone, um, it was down to $8 a share. And then... Saltzman defaulted on the interest payments to Swiss Bank, so he's he's in he's in a whole lot of bother at this point. Um, uh, so that that matches up with the, these film projects that aren't getting off the ground because he just can't he can't finance them. Um, it's a real shame, actually. It really is. Yeah, and it's this mess that would uh, would would bring him down, I guess. Um, and we'll come to mm. that in a second. But um, as all this stuff's going on in the background, he's making these movies. They're also continuing to make Bond films. Live and Let Die um, is one that Harry was uh, the lead producer on. But the situation with Cubby was really, really poor. And the UA, head of UA, a guy called Eric Plesko, talks about uh, meeting with the pair 
to talk about the film and they would sit at opposite ends of the room refusing to even look at each other. He said it was like being in a kindergarten trying to get the children to talk to each other. And at this stage, Harry and Cubby were running Eon out of two separate offices on the same street. So Harry um, played a, an important part in in landing Roger Moore as he'd had the decision with, uh, with George Lazenby. Live and Let Die was also with him. He was, Roger Moore was Harry's preferred choice for 007. And this is where we get this conversation between Harry and Cubby and Roger, where Cubby says that ha- Roger's too fat. Roger's got his hair's too long. Yeah, Roger, what was the, what's the line? Roger goes back, why don't you hire someone thinner with shorter hair then or yeah. something like that I can't remember what the, what the exact quote was but it was good but Tom Mankiewicz uh, who was co-writer or writer on Live and Let Die he said that Harry was prone to asking for crazy ideas to be included the one that he mentions is one where Bond wakes up and there's a crocodile in his bed quite rightly Mankiewicz said well how does a crocodile get into bed and why hasn't it eaten him before he wakes up etc <laughs> And another idea he was fixated on, Harry was fixated on, was having Bond trapped in a giant, t- giant tumble dryer. He was getting it in the picture and he's just like, I don't, I don't know how, what, what, how I'm supposed to figure this out. Um, Jane Seymour, who stars in Live and Let Die, she recalled seeing Harry and Cubby having a huge row in front of her. Um, but she never really got to deal with Cubby because he was only ever on set like a handful of times during the production. Someone who was uh, taken with Harry, though, was Yafet Kotto. He called him tough. He said Saltzman was like Martin Luther King, and he praised him for hiring black stunt performers. So I thought that was quite an interesting positive yeah. note for Harry. But on in Roger Moore's uh, Bond diary from Live and Let Die, uh, Roger noted that on the first day of shooting, his relationship with Harry Saltzman changed from, changed from friend to employee. And his issue with Harry was that he Harry would he would like to play the movie producer um, and bring his friends and visitors to the set, and he would prioritize bringing his friends onto the set over the production. So he would sort of you know impose himself where he wasn't wanted mm. on set. Um, he, Roger much preferred working with Cubby, um, and he he always said that the crew respected Cubby more than they did Harry. Um, and there was a time in there's a time in I think in in the book as well where Harry kicks off about how much they're spending on catering, um, and yeah, getting into a row with the caterers on that. Um, but Yafet Kotto again, he he also said it was Harry's decision to leave him out of press activity on the film, which was a massive disappointment for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the flip side, Gloria Hendry, who's in that film, she thought Harry was just like a big teddy bear. Um, but there is a great story about Harry being on set at Pinewood. Um, I think Derek Cracknell is the second, the assistant director and they're shooting and he's saying, quiet on the set, please. And Harry's showing some people around and they're talking and he's going, yes. And that includes you, Mr. Saltzman. Um, so he told him off. So on Live and Let Die, Harry Saltzman was against having Paul McCartney sing the theme song. He wanted Aretha Franklin do it. But George Martin said, if it wasn't Paul McCartney, it wasn't going to be anyone. And in fact, this story about the music it happens quite a lot. What he said it was Diamonds Are Forever. There was an issue with mm-hmm. I think possibly Thunderball as well. Harry objected to it was Thunderball or Goldfinger. He'd objected to as well. So, um, but unfortunately, um, um, things at this stage for Harry got from bad to worse. So um, for the man with the golden gun, 
uh, Eric Plesko from United Artists was called in to smooth things over between Harry and Cubby so they could get the man with the golden gun off the ground. But it was, like I said, it was a really tough time for Harry because his wife, Jacqueline, got diagnosed with cancer. And so he was then dealing with his financial issues, his wife's health, his issues with Harry, his, his issues with Cubby with the Bond films. And Guy Hamilton said he was sort of reluctant to return to make Man with the Golden Gun because he said that their relationship was a disaster area at this point. So Golden Gun is a is a Cubby Broccoli production and Harry's interests are becoming sort of uh, quite spread uh, at this point. Uh, Mankiewicz said um, that Harry was was asking for an elephant stampede to be included in the movie and he got so taken with this idea of the elephant stampede that he ordered 50 sets of footwear for the elephants to run over the forest, uh, the, the wood on the forest floor. So he took one day, midway through production, 200 shoes elephant shoes ended up on set but the man with the golden gun it would be uh harry's last bond film that he was directly involved with uh and his daughter hillary saltzman talking about his faults she said harry had the attention span of a gnat he couldn't be idle he probably had add and i think one of the reasons why bond was so successful was because he needed to be entertained and for him to be entertained, it had to be a constant. There couldn't be a pause. He just always wanted to go one better, one higher, one longer, one stronger. And he had many, many interests. And so uh, we get to the the final split from, from Bond now. And... Um, Apparently, Saltzman and Broccoli, they'd agreed to dissolve Dan Jack in 1972, but Cubby refused, allegedly, to honour that agreement. Um, so Harry Saltzman attempted to have uh, the Swiss courts dissolve the company, um, but his financial situation was getting really quite terrible by this point, and the LA Times were reporting in 1974 that Harry Saltzman was attempting to sell his 50% short, uh, share of the Bond film franchise to Paramount. The, like we said, the productions he's got going on at this point, they're either not getting off the ground or they're facing problems. These financial dif- difficulties meant that he had to sell that 50% stake in Dan Jack to United Artists in 1975. So they worked out a valuation um, and figured out that it would be worth $36 million. And this meant that Saltzman would be released from his debt as debt of $10 million at this point, um, and then would get a cash payment of $26 million. And that would be spread across five years. Um, and it also qualified as a tax-free transaction because it was in under Swiss law. So yeah, the, the repercussions from this were, were huge. Uh, it's it's gone from being an independent production um, company. You know, the pair of them set it up. They've got it off the ground, um, and now Cubby finds himself. He's he's with a like a a, corp, a big corporate company rather than a, a business partner. So um, that that's something that you know from this moment on everything changed, and his his health started to, to, to deteriorate after this as well. He got quite quite depressed. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is the situation that, like, now Bond finds itself in, isn't it? I mean, it's something we've discussed at, at length, how um, 
it's completely unique in that one half can't operate without the other. So you've mm-hmm. got Eon Productions who make the pictures for MGM. But they can't make the pictures for MGM until MGM has the money to invest in making the picture. Um, and it's this relationship that has impacted, you know, basically every picture from this moment onwards. You've got the huge mm-hmm. gap between GoldenEye um, and the previous film, License to Kill. Um, you've got from there then you've got all the situation with the distributors that plagued the daniel craig era so going from sony to universal um and it now is then you know the, the situation where now mgm is co-owned it is now owned by amazon so there's now a third party in the mix mm-hmm. of the owners ownership of bond and it all stems back to this period in the 1970s where harry found himself in a tight spot yeah um and I, I read that it took seven years for Harry to be paid for mm. his half of Eon. Yeah. Um, During which he actually realised that it wasn't a good deal that he'd got. Yeah. And he, yeah. he'd sold it too cheaply and he mm-hmm. transferred ownership too quickly. So yeah. without being paid. So it just caused him a huge headache. So he obviously thought that this would be the solution to all of his problems. Um, but this, I mean, this from here on in, I mean, it's just a downhill it's almost well, it seems like a, di- a downhill uh, s- slope. I'm sure it probably wasn't like that so much, but that's what it looks like from the outside in. And his daughter Hillary later said, a large part of what happened to my father was that everything he had built up collapsed around him. The most integral part of this was my mother's illness. Also, a government decision was taken to run a motorway past our home to immediately our property value was decimated. All these parts of my father's life were slowly crumbling and he became desperate. His desperation wasn't about making films. It was about spending the last few weeks, months, years, whatever that may be, trying to stop the cancer that was killing my wife. That was what was driving him at this point more than anything. So Jacqueline Saltzman, she would later die in uh, 1980. So it was a a long old battle um, after that for for Jacqueline, sadly. But in this period, like I said, seven years of uh, of waiting to be paid properly. Harry had to downsize. He sold his, his, his estate in Buckinghamshire woodlands to adnan Khashoggi, but one person that stuck by him throughout it all was michael kane he very he remained very very close with harry um harry had done him a huge favor early in his career allowing him to make zulu uh, by tearing up his, his contract that he had with harry um there were there would later be uh, reconciliations with cubby as well cubby invited harry to the premiere of your eyes only and they sort of rekindled their relationship at that point onwards. And Hillary's daughter later on said, you know, just like any relationship, they had their ups and downs and their arguments, but they did make up. And there was a respect there. And that respect still exists between the Saltzman and Broccoli families today. Deep respect and love and appreciation. So uh, Harry then re- retired to Florida, um, did occasionally come back to the UK. Um, and ended up producing a couple more pictures uh, whilst in retirement. He did eventually make a film about Nijinsky um, with Alan Bates. Um, and he obviously retained the rights from previous attempts to make that, that film. And then he also made a film 
1988 as a producer called Dom Zavizians, and that was an Italian film about a gypsy with telekinetic powers. And this was hugely uh, critically acclaimed and it won Best Director at Cannes Film Festival. So he still had the power to mm. make things happen at that stage. He died, Harry, Harry Saltzman sadly died in 1994 in September in Paris, his favourite city, um, leaving behind, you know, his three children uh, and this huge legacy um, of his pictures, but most importantly, you know, the James Bond story that he was left behind. And to finish things off, Gar The Guardian, writing about Harry Saltzman, they said, Saltzman was, by all accounts, the ultimate caricature of the movie producer. Warm, loud, crass, a consummate gambler with the requisite rackety past, a keen eye for the main chance and a tight fist around the purse strings. Saltzman seems to have stepped straight out of one of Mordecai Richler's novels about the blazingly nervous, blazingly nervy and alive Canadian Jewish bluffers and gamblers. Without him, British cinema of the 1960s and ever after would look decidedly different and a lot less fun. Indeed. So there you have it, Harry Saltzman. I mean, what is there anything more to say about Harry, you think? Not really. I think the, the Guardian put it quite succinctly, actually. Um, other than maybe a bit more recognition is needed. Yeah, and from researching Harry, there's sort of... Um, there's a time when it's it seems to be every ten years, you know, around the the tenth anniversary, mm. the question is raised, you know, does Harry Saltzman deserve more recognition? Yeah, because it is it is you know it is the Albert R. Broccoli's Eon Productions, um, but you know, without Harry, he would never have got his hands on Bond. Um, right. So, yeah, um, and also a lot of those early initial decisions made by harry that yes. were a key part of what bond became yeah i mean it's this it's, we've talked about this many times haven't we about this sort of alchemy of these two people coming together and these decisions that they make like you said monty norman sean connery um yeah. cubby bringing in with him the creatives that he worked with ken adam um yeah. john barry morris binder all these things coming together to create this yeah. uh this situation um, that, uh, yeah, it's um, Harry Saltzman is is a key part of that. Um, if you were to draw up a list of the most important creatives within Bond, Harry Saltzman would be near the top. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so when I think of Harry, I often think of that George Lazenby documentary where Jeff Garlin plays him. Uh, it's quite a funny, uh, a funny portrayal, uh, but that's how I like to like to think how he was i mean it, when you think about cubby and harry back in those days and then you see those pictures of them together they just look like a real pair of uh movie producers don't they yeah they really do yeah yeah but on that note probably worth mentioning that it's probably maybe too late to send in your underappreciated james bond movie moments at this stage we might be editing them by now but uh, if you are interested in taking part in our 60th anniversary special then you can email your two-minute clip telling us your favourite underappreciated James Bond movie moments that you want to shine a light on for the anniversary, the 60th anniversary. Send that audio clip to podcast at jamesbond.co.uk as well as any other feedback that you have. And where if people want to find us on social media, Brendan, how do they find us? At jamesbond.co.uk on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, we do this 
for free. We put this podcast out there for nothing. It doesn't cost you anything. But if you were interested in supporting the show, you could support us by buying us a coffee, as mentioned in the adverts in the middle. Um, three pounds a month. Uh, if you were to subscribe with a three pound per month subscription, that gets you what about what four to five episodes. Um, yeah. So seventy five p. An episode for seventy five k. Anything for seventy five p these days. And the cost of living crisis. So, uh, <laughs> if you were to do that, then we would really appreciate it. A lot of people, a lot of you have, have already sponsored the show, so uh, we really appreciate that. So, without further ado, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond podcast will return next week, and we are covering uh, 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 Skyfall. Wow, a big one. Skyfall. Watch it crumble. Watch it crumble. So, thank you very much for listening. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This is an important moment in my life. I feel a great sense of accomplishment, not only for myself, but for all my colleagues with whom I've worked over the years. The actors, the writers, the directors, those exceptionally dedicated and devoted technicians at Pinewood Studios in Great Britain and for my associates at United Artists. In particular, I'd like to acknowledge two men who were my first producing partners. The first was Irving Allen, and together, we enjoyed making the films that Roger Moore mentioned. The second was my partner, former partner, Harry Salzman, who also envisaged the possible success of James Bond. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.